Happy Palm Sunday. Why are we in the Old Testament? <laughs> thought this was supposed to be about the triumphal entry. It is. But remember, here's my, uh, my profound statement of the day. You ready? Context requires continuity. It just sounds like something somebody, somebody smart would say. Instead, you get to hear it from me. I've told you this before. I am big on this. 66 books. 1,500 years of writing, 40-plus authors, one message. If you can't find the one message, you're understanding something wrongly. When we get to the work of Palm Sunday and we get to the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, we are not just having Jesus, you know, show up one day. I've told you this before. He doesn't just show up and be like, hey, I'm God. Everybody fall down and worship. There is a history, there is a context under which Israel was supposed to be following along. Christ is fulfilling and demonstrating all of these things. So rather than just giving you the same triumphal entry sermon year after year after year, which is very tempting, because most of you guys don't remember what I talked about last year, and you're not motivated enough to go look it up, and I I understand that completely. But rather than do that... I take the opportunity and let's have some fun. Let's actually look at some of these pictures and one in particular here in Psalm 110. Um, Shameless plug, that's what we're going to do Friday for the Good Friday service is look at some more of these pictures and actually celebrate them and see the fulfilling work that Christ has done. So if you're curious what you were getting into on Friday, now you know. And if that discouraged you, just pretend you didn't hear that part. (laughs) Like, I'm not showing up for that. Well, then I didn't say anything. (laughs) So... The person of God determines the work of God. Without understanding the person, the work doesn't make any sense because, okay, we're not even to a Bible verse yet, and we're already around the podium. You know we're in for a rough day. So, if you do not start with the person of God and then understand his work, what person will you interpret his work in light of? You, me, whoever, you will find another person to interpret God's work in light of. And I've told you this before, anytime you start with people and try to understand God, train wrecks are a coming. We start with God and work down. So how do we understand the work of God in the New Testament? Well, we start by understanding the person of God as he has been revealed in the Old Testament. And yes, that even means Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and warn you. You will have a phrase of the day. Would you like to hear what it is up front? As promised. That is going to be your phrase of the day. As promised. Now, because we have not been walking through the book of Psalms, and we have not covered Psalms Psalms 1 through 109, do we just airdrop into the middle here and be like, oh, here we go. No, we have to have a little bit, not as much as you would need if we airdropped into the middle of like, you know, Chronicles, but you need a little bit of background. One of the helpful things about the book of Psalms, and okay, by the way, pet peeve that I'm just going to give you now, it is the book of Psalms. It is Psalm 110. Okay, just if you're ever wondering, just like when when people tell me the book of Revelations and that thing in the back of my head starts twitching, when people go, it's Psalms 112. No, it's Psalm. Okay, just, you're not a bad person. 
If you get it wrong from this day forward, I'm not going to throw things at you, but just pet peeve, and anytime I get a chance to do these things, it is the book of Psalms and Psalm 110. There you go. I even have to fix it in the computer when I pull it up, because it pulls it up in the computer as Psalms 110. drives me nuts. But anyway, it is an anthology book, meaning you can actually understand Psalm 108 without having read Psalm 107. For the most part, there are some exceptions. Um... Like the Songs of Ascent, Psalm, uh, Psalms 113 through 118 basically go together. There are other places where that is the case. I would encourage you, if you want to study the book of Psalms, that you do start with the first one and not go hunting around. But start with the first one as a foundation, and then you can hunt around thematically if you would like, because you will have Psalms of David, you will have Messianic Psalms, where you can just hop through the Psalms that are pointing to the future work of the Messiah. You can read through the imprecatory Psalms, which are works of people who are calling for God to deal with his enemies and to punish them and redeem his people. So you can attack some of them thematically, and they hop and skip around the whole book. Here, we have a Psalm of David. Remember that. We're going to mention it again, but remember who writes this. This is a Psalm of David. It is quoted almost a dozen times, or right around a dozen times, in the New Testament. It is quoted in Gospels, it is quoted in the book of Acts, and it is even quoted in an epistle. So it is quoted all over the New Testament, so it would probably do us a good deal to actually understand it a little bit, don't you think? I agree. So, who's ready to dive in? Yay! Oh, we're all excited today. Look at you guys. Ooh, all right. So, uh, warning, we're not going to get as far as you think as fast as you think we are. So, just, <laughs> but it's important, I promise. So, verse one The Lord says to my Lord, and we have to stop right there because this is so important to understanding this psalm that if we don't do this right now, we will be doomed. I've told you this before, but I'm going to point it out to you again because it matters. Okay, you can see what the NASB does here. Um, the NIV does this. I don't remember if the King James does this. Most modern English translations do this. You see here, the Lord says to my Lord. Notice that the two words for Lord are different. One is all caps and the other one isn't. Anywhere in your Old Testament... Actually, in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they'll do the same thing. Anywhere in your Bible that you see the word LORD in all caps like that, that is the name for God. That is Yahweh. For reasons I will never understand, I mean, I know what they are, but I don't understand them because I dislike them. We borrowed the rabbinic tradition of not writing the name of God. And we also borrowed their tradition of transliterating it into the name, into the word Lord. So every time in the Old Testament that it says, and Yahweh said, we write, and the Lord said, drives me up a wall because especially in a psalm like this, it is quite confusing. And you will see that later on when we get to it. But this is important. So every time you see just in your Bible from this point forward, anytime you ever see capitalized Lord... That is the name of God. You could reread that and say, Yahweh says to my Lord. So what does that mean? That means that God is speaking to a person. Who is this person? We don't know yet, but we do know something about him, don't we? Who wrote the psalm? David. What is David's job description? What is his title? He's king. Who in the kingdom outranks David? To whom does David say, my Lord? You know, like you're in some 16th century Elizabethan production here. Yeah, only God actually outranks David in Israel. 
And yet David is writing that Yahweh says to my Lord. Hmm. Second Samuel chapter 7. God's promise. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we've talked about this before. When reading prophetic utterance, we have to deal with the now-not-yet problem. So we have a near and a far. So a good example of this is Christmas time. We always read that the virgin shall be with child and she will bring forth a son, right? And I always remind you whenever you read that, that Ahaz, the king, should have expected something. He should have expected some young woman somewhere in the kingdom to give birth to a child as a sign that God's judgment was coming at that time. However... The Israelites also saw that as a promise of God going forward. They rightly saw that that was for Ahaz then and for the nation moving forward. Same thing with the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel 7, the, the, the Davidic promise that's given. Is there a king coming for Israel then who will build a temple and rule over the, the, the kingdom? Yes, his name is Solomon. Will he rule forever? No. When we establish a house for God's name, are we talking about the temple or are we talking about the eternal people of God who are his dwelling? And the answer is yes. Yes, we are. You have a near and a far fulfillment. Guess who understood that? David did. Hence, Yahweh can say to his Lord, who would his Lord be? It would be that fulfilling king, that king to reign eternal, who will eventually outrank David. Why? Because in order to reign eternally, who must thou be? The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. That's Deuteronomy 10. Do you know which New Testament book quotes that twice? Revelation 17 and Revelation 19, both of which are speaking about the king who is coming at the end of the age. They're applying that understanding to Christ. The king who will reign must be God in order to reign eternal, and he must be God to outrank this earthly king of Israel. Now, that's important. Remember that. We're going to come back to this distinction later on because it'll be important. But remember, Yahweh, God is speaking to the person in Israel who will outrank David. I'm talking about the Messiah. Now, what's the more important thing? That we know that God spoke or when I tell you God said something, what do you want to know next? What did he say? So the Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay. Why do we care about the right hand? This is my right hand. This is, I got it right. You're just backwards because you're looking at it the wrong way. <laughs> my wife is in the back going, oh, yeah, this is my right. See, see, see. <laughs> you didn't know there'd be a show here. YMCA. <laughs> I already warned you it was going to be a bad day. I warn you every Sunday, so, all right. What's the importance of the right hand? Well, again, go back into your work in the Old Testament, Isaiah 41. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous 
right hand. Go back to the song of praise after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. It's a sign. It's a place of honor, a symbol of power and majesty and might. So in other words, treating left-handed people as if they're less than is biblical. (laughs) No, no, it's not. But every joke you make is good. So there you go. So we are placing this person, we are placing this outranking of David at the position of power and authority and majesty in God's kingdom. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Notice who's doing the work. And here's where you're going to hear it for the first time. As promised. It hasn't been promised yet for David, but it is promised of God. If you go to something like Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that's God, by the way, who, and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is why I always laugh a little bit because it's coming. Watch this week. You'll see one somewhere. If you watch like Nat Geo or the History Channel or something like that, they're going to get their Jesus specials out this week if they haven't already started them. And number one question is, well, you know, nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus claim to be God. They always say that. Every time they say that, I want to throw something at my television. What do you think Son of Man was claiming? <laughs> Who is this Son of Man? It's, it, it's, it's almost like it's blindingly obvious, but it's so obvious it's blinding at the same time. Welcome to why I'm forever reminding you, we don't win with logic. We don't win with wisdom. We win with gospel proclamation. You have to change the heart first. Don't change the heart, you got no chance. Claiming to be the Son of Man is claiming to be the fulfillment of this promise of Daniel 7. The promise of Daniel 7 is built upon the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has all the way back in Daniel 2, which is what? That there's coming a kingdom that will start off small and grow and grow and grow until it takes dominion over the entirety of the earth. While David hasn't seen that part of the promise yet, David has been told that there's an heir coming. David has seen that the promise has been given to Judah, that the one to whom the king, that the throne belongs, is coming, that there is going to be a priest who will explain, that there is going to be a son of the woman who will crush the serpent and his offspring. And it is this hope and this longing that is, under, that is undergirding the praise and worship and prophecy of Israel. Remember, we are how many stories in our 66 books? One. You get off that one story and you're in a dangerous, dangerous spot. So God is going to make the enemies a footstool. God is going to secure this, because let's be honest, who else could? I mean, what's the history of human conquering and kingdom building? I mean, it's a broken, messed up bunch. I mean, we're going to rule everything. 
So the Sumerians are going to rule everything until the Egyptians showed up. And then the Egyptians are going to rule everything until the Assyrians showed up. And the Assyrians are going to rule everything until the Babylonians showed up. And the Babylonians are going to rule everything until the Persians showed up. And the Persians are going to rule everything until the Greeks showed up. And the Greeks are going to rule everything until the Romans showed up. And then the Romans are going to rule everything until, well, the Germans and the Russians and everybody and their uncle showed up. And... Then they were going to rule their little kingdoms until the Huns and the Mongols showed up, or until the Gauls rose up. Or ugh. Pick your battle. And this is the human history. So how do you secure a kingdom? Easy. You go back to Daniel 2. I don't need the kingdom that is of gold or bronze or clay or iron. I need the one that is cut from the mountain, carved without hands, that grows and is built by God and God alone. That's what we're looking for and looking at. So let's continue to verse 2. The Lord will, there we go. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Okay. God's going to build this kingdom and God is going to secure this kingdom. Guess what I'm going to say next? As promised. Psalm 2. All the kings of the earth gather together. They're trying to overthrow God. They're going to cast off his irons and they're going to rule themselves. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain. Now, when Psalm 2 was written, is God's king installed upon Zion? No. Has God promised that it will occur? Is it accomplished? <laughs> no, but it will be. It will be done. Why? Because God has promised and it will be delivered. This is one of those things that messes us up about time because we live, you know, moment to moment. You, you can't help it. It's how we live. It's what we are. But when God promises, it's done. Everything from that point forward is thought of and operated in light of its fulfillment because when God purposes, who undoes? When God speaks, who thwarts? When God plans, who undermines? The answer is no one and nothing. So for God to say, go ahead, keep on what you're doing. Keep conquering and killing and overthrowing and building up a name for yourself. My king rules and reigns, not yours. Christian, this is good news. This is why we have to remember the promises and live in light of them, because this is your hope. Anything really changed in the world? I mean, we've had the Gauls and the Russ and the Franks and all of that going back into history, and then, and then they became the French and the Germans and the Ottomans and the English. And uh, uh, What changed? No, I don't like you. I want to take that area, so I'm going to kill you, and then you're going to get mad 40 years later, and you're going to kill me and try to take it back. And this has been human history. Until when? It's almost like somebody once told you there, there would be wars and rumors of wars. And then the end will come. <laughs> Reminder that we don't work for and establish and build kingdoms here. We build them and work for in a kingdom that is established already by God in eternity. That is where we are going. That is what we are longing towards. Go again, go back to Isaiah, something we'd read in Christmas time. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, upon whose shoulders does the government rest? God's. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. That's God. Mighty God. Well, that's definitely God. Eternal Father. That kind of sounds a lot like God. Prince of Peace. Well, again, that's the work that only 
God can do. It's almost like when God puts on flesh and is born of a woman, we're shocked. Like, we didn't see this coming. Who knew? (laughs) Well, if you're paying attention, everyone. The reason I point this out, that the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. The reason I say this is as promised. We've mentioned all of them already, I think, but go back through your promises. David, there's going to come from you someone to rule eternally. That's a promise. Moses, there's going to come a prophet like you who will explain God to the people. Listen to him. That was a promise. Judah, there's coming a son from your line. To him, the scepter will belong. That's a promise. Abraham, you're going to have descendants like the stars of the sky, and it'll be a blessing upon the whole earth, upon all the nations. That's a promise. Noah, Hope for rest, a hope for the undoing of the corruption of mankind. All the way back to Adam. Look, does it get any worse than we ate the fruit and we messed up? (laughs) Like, is there ever a human being who felt lower than Adam in that moment? Don't think so. And yet, what is he told? Seed of the woman will crush the serpent and his offspring. All of these promises are building. All of this hope from God's people is building. That's why Noah is named what he's named. What does Noah mean? Who remembers? Rest. Why? Because perhaps this one will give us rest from the ground that God has cursed. Remember, that was the curse, is they got to work for their food. It's going to be toil and struggle. What was the hope of all of those generations in Genesis 5? That one of these sons is going to be the son. It wasn't. But he's a piece in the puzzle. And the puzzle is meant to demonstrate who God is, what he will do, and how he will set right the wrong that sin has so egregiously corrupted. So again, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, as promised, saying what? Rule in the midst of your enemies. How well does that typically work out? Like, do you want to establish a kingdom and be surrounded by your enemies on every side? Does this sound like a recipe for a long and healthy life? Or does this sound like a recipe for getting killed next Tuesday? Because I'm like you. It sounds like a recipe where I'm getting killed real quick. You rule in the midst of your enemies when? When they're conquered. When they are defeated and incapable of doing anything else. In other words, in order to rule in the midst of your enemies, the first thing you have to do is win completely. Colossians chapter 2. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Never forget that part of Colossians. We, we, we always like the part about Jesus nailing the decrees against us to the cross and, and canceling them out. Never forget that he then takes the enemies like a conquering king because he is, and he parades the defeated before his people. Why do you do that? Why did ancient nations go on this parade. They come back from war, and look, look at all the people we beat up. Look, 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 look. One, it's a reminder of how strong who is. Me, because we just, look what we did. And two, it's a reminder that they're defeated. They're conquered. They're in chains. How much trouble are they to you? The answer is none. The reason why that imagery is used, Christian, sin undone. It's power, it's influence, it's destruction, it's corruption. All gone. Bye-bye. See you. No more. 
we are free. It is defeated. When Jesus proclaims it is finished, he doesn't mean it's almost finished. He doesn't mean we're getting there. He means it is done at that moment. Sin is defeated. And I know you're fighting. And you're like, it doesn't feel real defeated. Well, God has promised what will occur. It will be done. Now, oh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll give you another one. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of his conquering work. And that conquering work will have effect not just on his enemies, but upon his people as well. Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Does that sound like any human being you've met? That they will see the conquering Christ and be like, ooh, 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 pick me, I want in, I want in. Is, is this the story of humanity? No. And yet, this is what will happen for this king who God is calling, this king who God is raising up. How? Well, for starters, what's your first step? Got to be rescued. John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. How do you get set free? If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. This is the work that Christ has done. He rescues them so that they can then do what? Does Jesus rescue us so we can go, okay, Anytime now. You coming back yet? You calling me home yet? What are we doing? Whenever you're ready, I'll be right here. Is this Christian living? No. You don't get called to sit in a lump of log. You're saved from something and you're saved to something. Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Because you have been redeemed and rescued, because you have now been changed, you will volunteer freely. You will serve the good king. You will worship the right God. You will forsake your idols and trust in him and him alone because you have been changed. And by the way, if you go to the ministry of Jesus... This is another one of those as promised. Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What's the next line? Closes the book, hands it back over and says, in your presence these things are fulfilled. How does that chapter end? (laughs) They're trying to throw him off a cliff. (laughs) Aren't we such a loving, compassionate lot? (laughs) No, no, we're not. Why? Because he he who commits sin is a slave to sin. We're going, I'm not an oppressed. One of my favorite lines in, in the New Testament is, Jesus reminds them of the slavery of sin, and like, we've never been slaves to anyone. Um, guys, there's a Roman garrison, like, right there. Step out of line for a second. You know what they're going to do? <laughs> they're going to come down here, beat you, kill you, and then beat you some more. You, what do you mean you're not enslaved to anybody? I mean, you're literally slaves right now. Not to mention the fact that 
you don't realize that your enemy is sin. You think your enemy is Rome. Welcome to, again, why I tell you there's nothing new under the sun. The problem of the ancient Pharisee was that his enemy was these pagan nations around him, not his self-righteousness. The modern American pagan, his enemy isn't some foreign conquering nation. It's just some philosophy that he's gotten. Of course I'm good. Look at the world around me. It's them who are bad. I mean, I'm better than that guy. It's not a new argument. It's just taken from this place and moved over here. Or the, my, my favorite way of putting it is that what's Satan's greatest trick? Convincing the world it doesn't exist. Oh, so you just think there's some dude with pitchfork and, you know, tail and the pointy horns and a red leotard running around trying to get me. Yeah, that's exactly how we picture him. I've told you before, the reason he doesn't show up like that is because if he did, you'd be like, <gasps> now I know that I know that I know that I know, and you would never doubt again because you'd be so creeped out and horrified and wanted to put pants on that you wouldn't even freak out about that. You ever notice that's never part of it? It's always the red leotard and the horns, and we never actually figure out, like, is it Daffy Duck or, you know, or like Donald where it's a shirt but no pants? I've never been able to figure this out. How does this work? You're welcome. Now you'll be wondering this for the rest of the day. <laughs> but I'm serious about this, by the way. Not that part, but the actual showing up thing is why do we have that mockery in culture? Because if I can get you to mock the truth, I can get you to ignore the truth, I can get you to forsake the truth, and which means I can get you to believe what? Yeah, whatever you want. Pick one. That's why we have the lovely modern-day idea of, I'm living out my truth. But what if your truth and my truth are enemies? We'll have to learn to coexist. To see, see, when my truth and your truth are on opposite sides of truth, then we both have a problem. <laughs> there you go. Which is, again, I don't want to agree to disagree. I want to be right, because that's where truth resides. And by the way, Christian, so should you. I mean, I know it sounds polite to say, well, you know, we can just, we can just you know, learn, to, learn to go along to get along. No, we can't. We can just kind of live and let live. Not really. Because pagan philosophy doesn't live and let live. Sin doesn't look at something and go, you know, we've conquered all of this. And there's this shiny object right there. But you know what? We've conquered all of this. We'll leave that shiny object alone. We will let it sit there and shine brightly. Sin never does that. It goes, ooh, we can corrupt that too. Because sin corrupts everything. And if it is not actively resisted, it corrupts everyone, including you. Now, I did not tell you to hate the world. As a matter of fact, I preached an entire sermon last week against that very idea. But you don't win the fight by attacking the people, and you don't win the fight by attacking the idea up here. You win the fight by changing hearts and minds and going after the core message, which is the foundation of the world in which you live. Christian, ground yourself. I know when you were a kid, you didn't want to be grounded. As an adult in Christ, you want to be grounded, okay? It's good for you. You need to be anchored upon the truth and warring for it. Not against the people, against the ideas, the thoughts, the things that we're actually trying to take captive. And again, not against them. Okay, we'll, we'll try to make this real time and see if we can make sense of this. Well, I believe there are 74 genders. What's the common response to that? What was your first thought? Be honest. Your first thought was, that's just stupid. 
You, 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 you laugh because it's ridiculous. And you go on Facebook and they're like, pick your gender and you got to spin it like the wheel that you do at your bank when they ask you how old you are now and you realize that you, you have to take that little mouse wheel and go, because it's not close enough. So when you're picking your Facebook gender, it's the same thing. You're, you're just spinning the wheel trying to find the one that you want. And you're going, this is ridiculous. How can anybody? They're pagans. Pagans do pagan things in pagan ways. Why are we shocked? Well, I'm, well, whatever. I don't care. I don't care what you are. Do you know there's a God in heaven who has made them male and female? Oh, yeah? Well, there's intersex people. Yes, because sin, wait for it, sin corrupts everything, including how you function, how you think, how your body develops in the womb, how you live out your life. It's a corruption. Well, that means I'm broken for the rest of my life. No, no, no. Your body may be broken, but in the hands of the potter, you can be remade. See, we don't have that level of conversation because we're always arguing about, oh yeah, what's a, what's a thingamabob? There's men, there's women, there's no thingamabobs. Oh yeah, well, I'm a thingamabob, and you're just thingamabob hateful. Mm-hmm. And we end up chasing our tail in circles because we don't, we're having the argument up here. We're never actually getting down to, where does this come from? Where did you come from? Why are you the way that you are? And what can be done about it? Because let's be honest, isn't that what we want for everybody? Isn't that what you you wanted for you? You woke up one day, whenever that day happens to be, and you realize, I am a broken sinner. And something must be done about this. And you recognize that it is God who changes, God who remakes, God who strengthens, and God who builds carrying forward. If we can't ever get to that reality about how we got here and what we're doing in this world, how do we expect to bring other people down the path? Again, knowing who you are, why you are, and where you're going, and why you're going that way. This is the work that God is doing amongst his people. This is what we have been saved to. If we miss this, we get the wrong argument. We become one side or the other of a political ideology or some candidate aisle. We go, well, we like this guy. We don't like that guy. Why not? Well, mm. I've told you my philosophy on politicians, haven't I? They're all lying. How do you know? because their mouths are moving. Even the ones that I like, I don't trust. Why not? Because they're people. And anything based upon the work of people is by nature going to be somewhat broken and corrupt, including me and the things that I try to build, which is, again, why, why, do, I, why do I warn you when I come around the podium? Because what are we doing now? We're building on the things that are in Scripture, which means you should be paying attention and wary and checking. Because if I don't stand on Scripture, I have no authority to tell you anything. And not only do I have no authority to tell you anything, if I'm not standing on Scripture, you should do what again? No, you always miss the first step. Throw something and then run screaming from the room as a warning to others. Always remember, there's, there's steps here. You have to do like the army and train you and drill you guys into this. Ooh, instead of fire drills, we should have heresy drills. What do you? <laughs> we'll set off the alarm and you guys like grab something, throw it. No! What could possibly go wrong with that idea? Besides everything, I, I will improve on my dodgeball skills, right? About three weeks of that, but it'll be like, you'll see me on ESPN 12, you know, winning the dodgeball championship. 
Now, again, your mileage will vary on all of these things. Can you have every fight every time with every person? No. But can you live your life faithfully every time with every person? Yes. Can you stand firm and hold to the principles that God has established? Yes. Will that then give you opportunity to both argue with and for people? Yes. How will you know? Trust in the Spirit to do His work, to bring to your remembrance, to guide your mind, and to strengthen your heart and soul when the time comes. Again, He's better at His job than I am. That's why I don't try to give you a bunch of examples because it becomes a train wreck because I'm not Him and the Holy Spirit is better at this. Big shock, right? And I want you to be guided in leaning upon Him, not by me. So I give you principles. You can argue with them. You can debate them with me. We can talk about it later. Provided we're actually trying to get back to a biblical foundation. Because if we're doing that, then this fight is absolutely worth having, and the argument discussion is worth having. If we're not trying to do that, and we're just trying to play gotcha, then welcome to the world, and you might as well be one of those little panelists. They always put on those little four-box things on the cable news station, where this one yells at that one, who yells at this one, who yells at that one, and then you watch it for three minutes and go, you know what I got out of this? High blood pressure. Good job. (laughs) That's what I got. Instead, we want peace. We want security and righteousness. Those things aren't found in an argument. They're found in Christ. So as we build our principles and foundations there, we build upon the right thing. So let's keep going. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Duh. This is God. This is Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not make good? So you know that. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That just escalated quickly. That just escalated real quickly. When did Israel get priests? Exodus 28. Bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. Now, when we made all those guys priests, who was in charge? I mean, other than God, don't give me that answer. So in middle of Exodus, Aaron is made priest. Who's in charge? Moses is in charge. Now you move to the kingdom years. What do you see? You're seeing the priests are supposed to be doing their work at the tabernacle. When Israel needs a leader, who do they get? They get a judge. God raises up a judge as a leader, and then eventually Israel starts corrupting this, and they try to merge the office of judge with that of the priest, and you see guys like Samuel. But move into the kingdom years now. Who's in charge? Who's running Israel? Again, outside of God. The king is. So David has, what, what's uh, Ahimelech and Abiathar, right? And you see this throughout your kingdom years. Hezekiah has priests. Um, Joash has um, uh, Jehuda. Now move to your post-exile time. What do you get? You get the same thing. Zerubbabel is returning as governor with Jeshua the priest. Nehemiah is building the wall and doing the administrative work with Ezra operating as scribe for the religious instruction. This has been done throughout Israel's history as you have leadership and you have priests since priests have come along. Now, who's this guy that Yahweh is speaking to? It's David's boss, the guy who rules above David. So God who will be king, but he's also now what? Priest. So we have a king who is now a priest. How in the world is that going to work? 
according to the order of Melchizedek. Ah, or as my father-in-law said for years until I said this out loud in front of him, Melchizedek, which sounds like something you order at a Burger King at a truck stop. <laughs> but I said this one day and he goes, that's how you say it. Yeah. He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> this was like six, seven years ago. I just, I just love the fact that there was a Sunday school teacher for, for 50 years sitting in classes saying Melchizedek. That's just, that is awesome to me. I, I appreciate that. All right, so who is, who, who is old Melchizedek here? Genesis chapter 14. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. This is Abraham, by the way. He has gone after Lot to rescue him, and he's defeated basically everybody else. And Melchizedek, here we go, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he, talking about Melchizedek, was a priest of God most high. He blessed him, that's Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave to him a tenth of all. So now you understand how this king will also be a priest, right? Makes perfect sense. No, I, I, I don't blame you. Um, I'll help you out. If you ever want to have some fun, you can do a search, like go to like Bible software or go to Bible Gateway and just search for Melchizedek. He appears in Genesis 14, Psalm 110 in Hebrews. <laughs> and thanks be to God for the book of Hebrews. This Melchizedek, this is Hebrews 7, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. So that's who Melchizedek is. Then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a, a priest perpetually. Now do you understand what Psalm 110 is building on? Now, is Melchizedek an eternal priest? No. But in Genesis 14, he just, this king of righteousness, king of peace, from the poetic point of view, I guess, shows up. Where'd he come from? I don't know. Where'd he go? I don't know. That's the point. We've talked about this a million times. We'll talk about this a million more because this is how your Bible functions so often. We have this idea called typology. We have types and shadows, pictures of the things that are to come shown to you throughout scripture. Melchizedek is one of those types. He's a picture of the work of Christ. He is this king of righteousness, hmm, who is king of peace. Hmm who does not seem to come from anywhere, who does not seem to ever leave, who is also a priest of God to whom Abraham owes allegiance and tithe. In other words, he's a picture of the work of God. That's what David is picking up on here, that that king, like Melchizedek, will be a king of righteousness, will be the king of peace, and will be the priest to whom we all pay homage. Now, the Lord is at your right hand. Notice it's little O-R-D, right? Now, this is an argument in theological circles right now. Because this is the word Adonai, which is almost exclusively used in the Old Testament for, for God. So, I, like, I don't love the way the NASB translates this, but I like the point that they get to because I think they got the right point. The Lord is at your right hand, meaning... 
We are no longer talking about God. Who are we talking about? We're talking about this king that David has been extolling, this priest king. Where is he standing seated? At the right hand of God. So now we're still praising God, and this Messiah guy is at your right hand. And he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. So in other words, God will do all this establishing work. God will do all of this conquering work on behalf of this king. So that this king will then do what? The same work that God is doing. Which means the king will do the work and God will do the work. Well, who gets to do God's work? God does. So who's this? It's almost like there's a Trinitarian theology presented in Scripture, which is why we hold to the doctrine. See, nobody wants to hold to the doctrine of the Trinity because it doesn't make any sense and it hurts our heads when we try to explain it. But we hold to it because this is how Scripture is presented. How do I get an eternal king who wields the power of God, operates under the authority of God, stands in his presence, explains him, is perfectly righteous, brings peace, delivers wrath, and accomplishes righteousness on behalf of his people? How do I get a king who does that? The king must be God. This is why we end up with Trinitarian theology, because it's the only way we can explain the work of Christ. Is is he a man? Well, yeah, he's eating food, he's walking around, he gets tired, he gets hungry, he's born of a woman, but he wields the power, authority, and possesses the majesty and glory of God. Therefore, we have God in flesh. We're not left with any other alternative because it's the only thing that explains it. So this king will shatter kings in the day of his wrath, as promised. Oh, Psalm 2. O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way from his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is that reminder from the book of Revelation, from the end of chapter 6. The kings of the earth are all running around scared. Why? Because the wrath of God and of the Lamb, which is one of my favorite unintentional comedy moments in the Bible, have been released, and who can stand in their presence? I always like to picture the wrath of the Lamb. I picture this little... (laughs) But there you go. You will now have that picture in your head every time you read it as well. (laughs) See why you don't take that book so literally? Verse 6, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. As promised. Joel chapter 3. In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my peoples in my inheritance, Israel. In other words, this is good news for you, Christian. Because when this king comes in his wrath and he comes conquering, who will he defend? His people. He will defend them and he will uphold them and they will not experience any of his wrath. And he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head as promised. Zechariah 14. You know, it's a good day when you get a Zechariah reference. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but it will come about that at the evening time there will be light, and in that day living waters will flow from Jerusalem. This is why understanding the person of God and the person of Christ is so important to their work. Is When we see the triumphal entry, we see the hosannas and the palm branches and the proclamations. And Can you believe these people are blaspheming? Tell them to shut up. Now you understand, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones 
will cry out. Why? Because this isn't just a guy who did some stuff. This is the culmination of the work of the eternal God, the king of creation who is redeeming his people and accomplishing his work from long ago, fulfilling promises handed down over the centuries, delivered to kings and prophets, rich and poor, and he is fulfilling them in their presence in real time. If you lose that, you lose the richness of the work of Christ because you have failed to understand his person. Christian, remember this as you live your life because this is the God to whom you owe your allegiance. This is the God whom you serve. This is the God who, wait for it, is still at work in the world in which you live. He is the one who can accomplish promises to David and to Moses and to Judah and deliver messages through the prophets. And he can make sure that nothing is left to chance. And he accomplishes all these details by bringing forth all of these things. And we look at the world and go, if only God. Mm, He is. He has. He will. The brokenness is not with him. It is with us. This is why I'm forever praying that he would strengthen our hearts and our minds, that he would renew them, that he would increase our faith. Because so often we're the, we're the father at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. That Jesus comes down the mountain and the, the father's got the demon-possessed boy and the demon keeps throwing him into the water to drown him and throwing him into the fire to burn him. And he looks at Jesus, he says, I asked your disciples and they couldn't do anything. If you can, will you please heal him? And Jesus goes, if all things are possible, to those who have faith, or to those who believe. And the man cries out what? I believe. Help my unbelief. (laughs) He wants to, but he can't. The spirit is willing, and the flesh is weak. This is where we live every single day, which is why we have to keep returning back to our foundation, why we have to be anchored so firmly, because if we don't, it's just so simple in and of ourselves to drift away, to forget that he is a God, not just sitting there every once in a while going, hey, all right, let's throw him a bone here, give him a prophecy every once in a while, and you know, sprinkle a little fulfillment in there, and okay, keep him strung along long enough to keep paying attention. No, this is a God who is active and involved, who is organizing, who is accomplishing, who is working on behalf of his people. And as his people, we can rejoice. Because where I fall short is where he picks me up. And where I fail is where he succeeds. And where I am broken is where he builds up. And where I think I have built is where he tears down. And all of that work is good for me because it comes from the hand of a gracious, loving God who has not forgotten nor forsaken his people and is building them day by day into the glorious kingdom that he has promised. And as we walk and persevere, we walk and persevere towards that end. So when we see the triumphal entry, it's not just an event. It is a culmination that isn't complete yet. Because Christian, where do you live? You live in the same place, proclaiming hosannas, hoping that the king is coming into the city. But is he here to rule yet? In you, yes. In everything, doesn't feel like it. Which means we do what? We hope and we wait and we trust, knowing that as he has delivered, he will deliver. And as he has remembered, he will still remember us. Let's pray.